And if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn it with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1,161. 1,161. going to read the first six verses of this passage together. So listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this word that you have given to us, for its challenge, and for its astonishing comfort and hope. And I pray that you would help us to see it as such, that you would apply this passage to our hearts today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been asked many times, perhaps with a sigh of exasperation, why can't we all just get along? It's a question that is really difficult to answer, especially without Jesus. After all, we are all on the same planet. Astronauts talk about the overview effect of someone being able to see that we're all on the same rock, that there gives a, a rather profound change to people in thinking how we are all connected. But this doesn't seem to unite us. Even though we're made of the same stuff, have a lot of the same experiences, have a lot of the same hopes, dreams, comforts, fears, but these things don't seem to unite us. So why is it so hard for us to get along? Well, the answer is it's because we're sinners. And because we're sinners, we think only of ourselves. Pride gets in our way. Whether we come from an individualistic society where look out for number one, which would be more what it is here in America, where we think of just ourselves as individuals, but even societies that are a tribe, that are collectivist, they'll think of their own unit, whatever that happens to be. So pride is not something that any culture escapes. So how is it that we can hear this call from Paul that asks us that we would be Unified. How can we do it when it seems like nothing else will? I start here because unity is unnatural. Unity is not something that comes up by itself or that comes up without effort. This is something that needs to be maintained. And this is true in the church. 
The reason why unity is so hard is not just because we're sinners, but more specifically, the things that we need for unity, we're all against. Look at what Paul is asking for us here. That we would be humble, that we would be gentle, that we would be patient and loving to one another. That's a heart. In order to have those things, it needs to be transformed. So we're going to look at these things today. We're going to look at why people, when they look at the church, they should at first say, I wouldn't have put those two people together. Why are those people friends? But then once they discover what it is that unifies us, then they would say, oh, of course they're unified. Because that is something grand. So we're going to take a look at our two points today. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the first point. We might not make it to the second point today. But the first one is a new walk united with others does not come naturally. And the second point is that unity can only be found in God. That's what we're going to explore today. So as we get started here in chapter 4, we're coming to the tipping point of Ephesians. Ephesians is a beautifully balanced letter, three chapters and three chapters, and here is a turning point for us. This letter that Paul has written to the Ephesians, the first three chapters have laid down the doctrinal foundation for everything else that follows. You cannot have commands until you've had a call. You're not able to expect a change in your obedience until you've had a conversion based on the, doc- the doctrines we see here in the first three chapters. We discovered that God has freely chosen us to be saved in him, that he pulled us out of a dead sinfulness that was not sensitive to him at all and has united us not only to himself, but to each other past any sort of lines of change or discrimination that we would otherwise put that all people can be united together in Christ. So now what? As we get chapter 4. That's why Paul says, I therefore, on the basis of everything that we've just said, here is going to be the call on our lives. We can't skip to the call without the doctrine. If we do that, we're moralists. If we just look at the theology and have no basis in our lives, then what we're studying is philosophy. Something fun to think about, but has no real relevance to life. That's not what theology is at all. We have to have both, which we need to keep both these things in mind as we go forward. So, as we look into verse 1, Paul gives us a challenge, again, from prison, which should tell us we need to listen. This guy's willing to go to prison for this. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, or exhort you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Jerry Bridges, in his wonderful book, The Pursuit of Holiness, has an illustration from the military. When you have an officer that is disciplined, most of the time in their paperwork, there'll be something about that there was behavior unbecoming of an officer. In other words, this person was acting out of accord with the rank that they had. There are expectations because of the privileges that you have. And when you violate those things, that's unbecoming of your rank. In the same way, in our Christian life, we have been given something magnificent, as we've just seen in the first three chapters. We've been given a huge calling, a tremendous privilege, a great power. And this calls for responsibility. 
This calls for duties that come with this. That there is a worthy walk that we should walk. There should be a change in our lives. Again, one commentator put it this way. It says, conduct always follows calling. It's only after the experience of new life or regeneration that God's people are able to follow his commands faithfully and worthily. So again, we have to keep in mind, this is transformation by Jesus to make this work. This isn't something we can just grit our teeth and do. But if we're not doing it, then we have to ask, has Christ changed us? Because that will always be the case. So, how do we walk worthily? Is this by doing some crazy physical challenge? It's what we see in other religions. To make themselves worthy of the God that they're worshiping, they'll crawl across hot coals or starve themselves or nearly to death. Is this what God calls us to do in order to make a matter worthy for him? The answer is no. We don't have to crawl across hot coals or starve ourselves. We have to do something much harder. You can crawl across hot coals. But to be humble, that calls for something. That's the first thing we're going to look at, being humble. So let's take a look at humility. Humility was not considered a virtue in the ancient world. In fact, there wasn't a Greek word for it prior to the New Testament times. In order, humility at this time, there was one of the commentators pointed to a, a to an emperor writing about 50 to 100 years after the Bible was written, talking about humility and seeing this as a negative. That seeing oneself as lowly would be a terrible approach to life. You can see we are not ahead when it comes to the self-esteem thing. But there's a lot of misunderstanding about what humility is. They misunderstood it in the ancient world, and a lot of people misunderstand it now about what does humility look like in the Christian life. It is not thinking of yourself as, oh, I'm the scum of the earth. This is not humility. It's much more profound than that. Take a listen to what one commentator put it. He says, the demand to humble oneself like the child that was placed among the disciples in Matthew 18 does not mean that one should make oneself lower than one actually is. Rather, One should know, like the child, how lowly one really is. Humility is to know how lowly we are before God. Such humility and lowliness bring joy and bliss, for they permit one to share in the royal rule of heaven. Do you see the difference there? This is not thinking lowly of yourself and saying that I have no value. You do. You're made in the image of God. But that in comparison to God, this puts us in our place. We don't think of ourselves higher than we ought. Gives us a realistic picture of who we are. And by being caught up in this larger vision of who God is, we gain the goal of humility, which is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. You're simply not putting as much cognitive effort behind your life and your things. Your values, your feelings, your, your, your. That stops. You catch on to something grander. It's hard to come up with in 
a selfie age about what it would take to awe us to the point where we wouldn't even think to turn the camera around to ourselves. It's hard to imagine something like that, but the best that I could come up with was a funeral. We tend to be forgetful at funerals of ourselves. This is about the person that's in front of us or the family that's there. That's the approach that we should bring to our lives is self-forgetfulness and others-oriented. But again, that doesn't come from whipping yourself. That comes, that, that gets exhausting. But looking at who God is, capturing his awesomeness, well, that's something that gives you energy. That's something that gives you humility. There's a listen to a wonderful uh, podcast this week. I'll, I'll post it to the website on Tuesday. It's by a man named Gavin Ortland. He talked about the different kinds of humility. One sort of humility that he talks about is when you enter into a grand palace and throne room of a king. And he's up there and he's on the throne and there's a certain pullback. You recognize the privilege it is to be here in this kingdom and how powerful this person is that's sitting on this throne. But then there's a different kind of humility that comes about when that king gets off the throne and cooks you breakfast. Of being awed at what this king is doing for you that despite his exalted place in life, he condescends to serve you. Well, that's Jesus. Grand and exalted over us. It is willing to come and to serve us. That's humbling in multiple ways. It's not just a shrinking back, but it's a, it's a moving forward. It's a realization of how wonderful God is to serve such a people like us. So how does this work out practically? What does humility look like on the street? What does it look like in our day-to-day living? Well, one thing that Mr. Ortland had pointed out, very practical, how well do you listen to other people? Can you hear people or are we listening for a response for what we can say? It's what humility looks like in day-to-day living. Humility looks like the absence of entitlements. Well, I am entitled to a night off away from whatever. We're not. I am entitled to pleasure. We're not of any kind. It's not looking at other people as extras in your movie. It's not treating other people like means to your ends. You're not the star of this movie. I'm not the star of this movie. You're not the director either. Thank God. We'd make a mess of our movie. That's what humility is. It's not pounding ourselves. It's not even taking the energy to pound ourselves. But it's focusing all of that outward towards others and towards our God. That's humility. And it goes hand in hand with our next term, which is gentleness. He's calling us to walk worthy of the calling which we've been called with all humility and gentleness. What is gentleness? Well, 
Actually, Aristotle had a pretty good grasp of what this word was and how Paul is using it here. He described gentleness as being between excessive anger against everyone and on all occasions and never being angry with anything. There's a balance here with gentleness. If I could rephrase Aristotle, I might say gentleness is using only the amount of force necessary. When you are going to, if you have contact lenses and you are putting in your contacts in the morning, you use only as much force as is absolutely necessary to get those in your eyes. But you don't do nothing. We tend to confuse gentleness with self-preservation. It's like, well, I don't want to confront that person because God calls me to be gentle. Well, I don't want to speak the truth over here because God calls me to be gentle. No, that's self-preservation. That's not gentleness. That's shrinking back from duty. That's not gentleness. Gentleness is saying this is something that needs to be dealt with. And we're going to give every bit of push that is needed, but only as much push as is needed. That's hard to do. It's hard to confront somebody and pull back what we really want to say. But it's only saying what we really need to say. That's what makes gentleness so hard. You don't get to just abdicate all conflict. You don't just get to run away from anything that might cause pushback. But you have to do it carefully. You have to do it slowly. And that's hard. It takes time. You need humility to be gentle. You need to think less of yourself in order to give other people the gentleness that they need for their corrections. One of my old seminary professors put it this way, humility and gentleness together refer to an attitude that recognizes one's true position before God, a suppliant in need of his help, and is willing to be kind and gracious to others, even when circumstances might excuse one from showing those qualities. Did you catch that first part of what he was saying? Humility and gentleness come from an understanding of who we are in relation to God. We need gentleness. We need grace. We should be humble because God brought us from the dead. He has served us in an amazing way. So how could we think we are above doing the same? The king's gotten off the throne and cooked breakfast. This means we can pass the plate on to somebody else. This is what this is calling for, humility and gentleness. Now, we're going to ask difficult questions of the Bible, and we should because the Bible has those answers for it. We say, well, what about when Jesus was flipping tables over in the temple? How can we consider that humility and gentleness? He whipped together a cord and was whipping people out of the temple. What is Jesus doing here? Well, again, Jesus in his divine insight is able to see that's what it would take. And Jesus was willing to push it even to that point in order to do what the Lord's will was. Now, this does not free you to put put us to string a whip together to get us out to Odie's. It's not how this works. (laughs) What Jesus was doing was seeing 
that the worship of the Lord was being contaminated. And a whip and overturning tables, that was gentle. Because something like that demands death. This is Jesus being gentle. There could have been a lot more done, but only as much as was necessary is what Jesus did. That's humility and gentleness. So, next, patience. The one thing we all fear to pray for is patience. So we pray for it, and God will send us things to do so that we have to be patient. But this is what Jesus is doing when we're talking about patience. Patience is waiting. Waiting is really hard to do. The way I describe patience is going down God's road at God's speed limit. It's really hard to obey a speed limit when you're in a hurry. It's hard not to try to rush things when you have another agenda in mind. It's easy to be humble and gentle for a little while. When we've been well-rested, we've had our coffee, it's easy to be patient and gentle with the kids and to be humble in our approach as parents. But when it goes on, when you've been dealing with it since 3 a.m., that's where patience comes in. This is not a one and done. This is a long-standing commitment to each other in being humble and gentle with one another. It's not easy to do. He continues on with all patience, bearing with one another. Now, this is an interesting word. If you look up the other cases where this word is used, bearing up, you'll come up with the word putting up, <laughs> tolerating. How long shall I be with you? This is bearing up. But is this the attitude that Paul is getting at? No, no. This is bearing up with one another in love. It's not through gritted teeth, but it's with a heart that smiles. Have you ever seen somebody who has had to be a caretaker with their spouse for decades, but the person loves the other? Is it easy service? No, it isn't. It is very difficult to be a caregiver. But the ones that do so in love, that's the idea we have here. It was like, yes, of course I'm going to help my husband, my wife do these things. Oh, yes, it's difficult. Yes, there's bearing up. But it's doing so in love. Because there's a greater vision for this. That's what we need. Now, it's important to say here, when we say bearing up with, this does not mean turning a blind eye towards sin. This does not mean, well, someone is being abusive over here, but you know what? Gentleness and bearing up with, we don't do anything about that. That's not what Scripture says. In Matthew 18, when there is real sin going on, it needs to be confronted. Remember, gentleness doesn't mean we can run away from our problems. Bearing up doesn't mean that we shut off our eyes to seeing sin. No, we have to deal with that. 
But what it does mean is we walk together with this person, recognizing none of us change overnight. That when we're bearing up with one's tendencies, when we're dealing with somebody else's pride, isn't it amazing how well we can see other people's pride, not our own? And knowing this person, your minister, we're all works in progress. We're all being sanctified. And it's a longer road in some areas for some people than others. But if they're coming to Christ, if they're confessing their sins, putting it to Jesus, endeavoring to repent, making progress in that repentance, then we bear up. That's what this is called for. Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, no way. Because it's not just putting up with the people in the church, is it? That's not the hard part. We all can bear up with for an hour on Sunday. It's the people in the church we go home with. It's those at the office. That's where this begins. It's being humble to your wife when she rightly points out you've done the laundry incorrectly. And willing to take that correction. It's willing to be gentle when you want to say something to your children, but you don't. Because you know that's not what's going to help them. Home is where this begins. And this should show this is impossible without Jesus. Until you've caught a vision for who Jesus is, you're never going to want to even begin to try this. Until you've understood that you are a sinner and that you don't deserve heaven. We were not treasures that God was, was trying to get a hold of. We were dead bodies that he was resurrecting. When we understand that, then this becomes possible. And that's how we get in verse 3, how we become eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is something the Spirit has already brought to us. We're called to maintain it. But we need to be eager. Another translation for that word is diligent. This requires upkeep. Not something we can just set behind and leave behind. But something that needs to be daily tended to, regularly examined. So where do we find the source for this unity? Well, that is in our second point, is that unity can be found only in God. As we look in the rest of this passage, again, briefly, we're going to see, as one commentator pointed out, the whole Trinity is involved here. Talked about the unity of the Spirit. Then we see our one Lord here in verse 5. And then in verse 6, we see the Father of all. The Trinity is our basis for unity. The Trinity is united. And so must we. And here, all the things that Paul lists here, it's not so much the individual things that he puts here in this list, but the one that he's emphasizing. There are seven of them here. And we have been called into one body and one spirit. As we were called into one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of of all who is over all, through all, and in all. That is a basis for unity. 
Nothing else is going to hold up. You tried to be united with people over politics over the last five, ten years? How easy has that been? United in approaches to health care? United in approaches to anything else? Anything else just becomes a part of our life. This is our life, is the Lord. Nothing else will be able to sustain the strain of this. So, what's our takeaway from this passage? One I've given you already, and that this sort of unity begins at home. When we feel conflict beginning to rise in us in our interactions with our family and our friends, particularly if they are in Christ, it's good to be reminded that that person Jesus died for too. So don't be getting rough and proud with someone that Jesus has died for. Someone that you are worshiping the same Lord. You have the same hope. Remember that. It's not easy to do. But it's what God has called us to do. And what he will give us power to do. I would also say this pattern of life doesn't just extend to the home. It extends to our online interactions as well. A screen can put a mask on a lot of things about what we say and how we act. But these things apply here as well. The internet does not lend itself to humility and gentleness. So we want speed, hasty responses, zingy one-liners, punchy memes. These are the things that trade in pride and harshness. But when we bring humility and gentleness to our interactions that will often require us to slow down, leave those tweets in the drafts for a little bit longer, maybe be a little slower to hit that comment button, this thing's rules our online engagements as well. And finally, our takeaway is to remember who it is that unites you. I'll tell you about one of the times I got rebuked at seminary. I was in my New Testament class taught by Dr. Sidney Park. She was quite a firework. We, we as students called her Jurassic Park. She came at us pretty hard sometimes. I was in my New Testament theology class and was discussing with one of my colleagues about an upcoming assignment that was rather difficult. I was trying to encourage him about the things that we all needed to do, and I said somewhat thoughtlessly, I said, you know, the faith is worth it. And she turned and looked at me. She was just walking by, got right in my face and said, he is worth it. And I didn't understand the significance of that at the time. I thought to myself, I'm just using a different word. That's what I meant. But what she was driving home is that we can't even for a moment, even in our careless words, forget that what we are following, who we are following, is a person. We're following Jesus. Not a book of rules. Not a building. Not an institution. Not a denomination. Those things all will die. This church building, as beautiful as it is, is one day going to be turned down. 
Our denomination, as fruitful as it is, is one day going to pass. Anything else other than the person of Jesus Christ will fail, including me. Being united under a person other than Jesus, united under a teacher. What do we see in Corinthians? I'm of, I'm of, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. No. You following after Jesus? Have you dedicated your life to him? Are you following after him? Are you being empowered by him? If you're not, then this passage is impossible. And there will be no way that you can be united to each other. Nothing else will do. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you've not submitted to our king, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can find humility and gentleness and patience. It'll take time to develop. That's going to be the only place you're going to find it. It's the only place you're going to find hope for the future. Not a wish, not a prayer, but a hope. An assurance of things to come. And if you have submitted yourself to Christ, take this opportunity to examine where else do I need a deeper submission to my Lord? Where have I been proud in my life? Where am I feeling entitled? What are the things that when they're taken away from me, I get really angry with? Think about those things. And then remember who Jesus is. See him there sitting on the throne and then see him there coming down and being on a cross. And then see him there back up on that throne where one day we will be as well, worshiping him in full humility total gentleness and a hope that lasts forever. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time of examining your word. Lord, I pray that you would lead us deeper into humility because we're not. We're not humble. We're not gentle. We're not patient. We're quick to give up on one another. So I pray that you would help us to see who you are, that we would see the value, the worth that you are, and may you help us to walk worthily of this call. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.